is that we can really get a grasp of the majesty of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as we look at the, the narratives of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as we consider the condescension and the humility of the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be easy for us to have the impression that the Lord Jesus came to earth or really was born uh, miraculously, of course, of a virgin, but that he was, again, kind of a superman, you know, that he, uh, through simple ordained grit and strength of the Lord did what had to be done presenting to us as I said that that one who is a, a great hero yes but not divine but what we see in the Lord Jesus Christ and what we really see displayed in the Old Testament is his majesty is his glory the story of Christ is is the very origin of the fairy tales of our day uh, it's incredible when we think about this, uh, this cloaked king that comes to his own people under the disguise of humility and neediness and casts off his cloak and all can see his glory and majesty. But what we see in the New Testament, of course, is that his glory and majesty hasn't been yet realized we actually have to look back to the Old Testament to see the true glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. When on trial, he was spoken of as a king. The Lord Jesus said, yes, in fact, I am a king. But there was so little understanding of that and so great a disconnect between all of the prophecies and all of the truths about the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament and what he was realizing there as he anticipated the cruel death on the cross. The reality is, is that the Lord Jesus Christ was and is a majestic ruler and king. He is, he is the, the origin. He is the, the prototype. He is the individual upon which all further and future kings, that is, beyond the Old Testament, would take... Uh, their understanding, but of course none can go beyond his glory and majesty, beyond his power, beyond his sovereign care, beyond his powerful abilities as defender and king and ruler and also as shepherd and the lover of our soul. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. It is true. He earned the redeemed. He earned them by way of creation. You consider likely that you own the things you make. The Lord Jesus made us. But also he purchased us by his own blood. But those things seem gritty, perhaps, and different than simply the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ is a great king of his own, that he, in fact, is worthy of all glory and honor had he not even earned and purchased his own people. But we see that all of these 
things, of course, are true. And we should say that in his purchase of his people, he didn't buy them cheaply. The Lord Jesus didn't drive a bargain. He paid dearly for those things that he did purchase. And so we can be thankful for that. But let's consider his royalty and majesty here in Micah chapter 5. Micah 5 verse 2 is a place that is referred to many times in the New Testament. When Zion's deepest degradation had occurred, the ruler in Israel will arise out of Bethlehem, who will not only secure Israel from her foes, but raise them to clear dominion over them, founding an everlasting kingdom of peace and glory. We see in verse 1 of Micah chapter 5 that at this greatest degradation of the nation of Israel, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. At that moment, at that greatest degradation, which of course has already occurred, there's this reminder in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, this promise made, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Let's take this one verse, a few pieces at a time. Uh, we see here this idea of too little. Too little. Too little for what? Well, too little for amazingness. We look upon a town and we wonder how anything amazing could come out of that small, dusty town. But is it not a pattern of the Lord's to work in unexpected ways with unexpected means? I mean, that really is uh, a significant theme of the way God works, isn't it? Because we're so inclined and we're often so confident in our own ability to kind of read things, as it were, that we often limit what it is that God does by our own expectations. by the expectations of flesh, perhaps of superhuman flesh, but nonetheless of flesh. And the, the Lord Jesus, of course, crushes all of those ideas to powder. I mean, let's consider a few of the things that God has done. He destroys wicked God, rejecting humanity by a flood, using under ocean oceans and rain, saving a remnant on a ship. Who would do that? Who has done that? Who's ever fought a war with floods and rain? He subverts global anarchy by creating languages. I mean, it's incredible. Who would think of that? He overcomes huge armies with small groups carrying torches in pots or marching around walls and shouting. He has a shepherd slay a giant who is defying the entire Israeli army with a small stone and a sling. This is the, this is the work of fairy tales. 
He routinely selects his leaders, the youngest, the smallest, the most unexpected. He packages the worldwide redeemer in the flesh of an unknown carpenter born in a cattle stall. He writes the redemption story as what appears to be a tragedy of weakness when in reality it's a breathtaking display of disciplined strength and a precursor to his final comprehensive victory. Too little. Well, that's precisely the reason I expect why Anna and Simeon were waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ. They knew where he came from. They understood the smallness of this one. And they recognized the pattern of a sovereign God in this little unassuming baby, the Lord Jesus. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem, it's a simple word, Bethlehem, house of bread. This idea of fruitfulness, Ephrathah, is really a synonym. It has to do with being fruitful or being fertile. It's identified not with Zebulon, where there was also a Bethlehem, but with Judah, Bethlehem Judah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. It's the city of David's origin, but not typically referred to as the city of David. Jerusalem. Bethlehem's smallness is contrasted here with her future exalted dignity. And we could stop here for a moment and do a little more with these two cities of Bethlehem and Jerusalem. Of course, they're very close together. But where was the final king? The majestic king, the one spoken of from of old. Where was he to come from? Not Jerusalem. You would have expected him to come from Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the city of kings. The royal babies were born in Jerusalem because the royal mothers and fathers were there. But this baby was born in Bethlehem. Why? Well, because the seat of power when the Lord Jesus came to this earth was no longer in Jerusalem. It was in Rome. You see, the very, the, the very idea of the prophecy spoken of here in Micah rec recognizes that the seed of power will be broken. The chain will be broken. The Lord Jesus doesn't spring from those. Not by divine appointment. He springs from God. We see no less than that here. The birth of the Messiah in Bethlehem and not Jerusalem presupposes a loss of the throne prior to his arrival. The Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's consider this ruler in Israel. The idea of ruler in Israel. We think of the names of the Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps particularly in this case, we should think of the word Emmanuel, God with us, with us. 
The Lord Jesus isn't some chief executive in some distant city. No, he's in with us, as the Bible says. He's in Israel. He's to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Now, the, the prophet here is careful because typically as humans, when we think of eternity, we think of the future. We think of the future rolling on forever and ever. And that's certainly not a bad way to think of eternity, but you recognize, of course, that it's only half of eternity. Because there's another half. The Ancient of Days. And that's how he points to the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was before all things. Apostle John captures it well. In the beginning, he was already there. No one had to wait on Jesus. He was there. Not detached. It's God with us. He's with his people. He's a shepherd. And he's a king. Think of it. Always there. With us. Whose coming forth is from of old. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Consider Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Of course, pointing to the narratives of the humility and the condescension of Christ. John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. A reference here to Micah in Matthew chapter 2. They, that is the wise men, told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. All of those kings that went before Christ, all of those types of the Lord Jesus Christ fell into those same traps that God used Samuel to warn the people about, the ways of kings. We see, among other things, there was a planned obsolescence with the kings of Israel, a recognition that even in the best kings, these were yet only humans. And even in anticipation of the next great king, there was this recognition that there is one who will, in fact, fulfill all of those things that God has promised, and that is the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 7, verse 42, Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? 
Now, have you ever thought about what it took to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem? I mean, we often desire for the Lord to drop a poster board down out of heaven and say, this is the way, walk ye in it, right? He could have done that with Mary and Joseph just to, just to locate the birth of the, the baby Jesus in Bethlehem, but, it, but that's not the way it worked. It's not the way it worked. So first of all, don't forget about the incredible precision involved in the birthing of babies. But what did our sovereign God have to do? Well, he, he had to have his land, Israel, overrun by a number of dominating nations. And then ultimately ending at this point with Rome. And then he had to draw the attention of the emperor in Rome to create, for the first time ever, a tax. And with the brilliant idea of everyone going back to the city of their origin at this precise moment when a little baby would be born to Mary and Joseph and had him there in humility born in a cattle stall. And so imagine all of the things that God would accomplish here simply for this to occur in this little town of Bethlehem. You know, there was enough information about this little child for the entire city to be in an uproarious celebration just like Anna and Simeon did. But they didn't. They didn't do that. As a matter of fact, even after told the truth, the king of the land, the governor of the area, decided that he, his best course of action was, was to put down this one who was spoken of, somehow that he would be able to defy God himself. Didn't work, as you know. Verse 3 Therefore, he shall give them up. Israel's apostasy will cast them into a period of great difficulty, and the end of this period will come about, not because they have turned, but because the Lord determined that time will end and he will bring forth the promised Messiah, that he will turn them to himself. It may be that sometimes we think of this period of time uh, in Israel when the Lord Jesus showed up as Messiah, that somehow the people were beginning to turn to God, that there was uh, this initiating event from the people and that God followed by taking upon himself the opportunity of the hour. But of course you would recognize that that would be getting cause and effect all wrong. It would be to misunderstand the very basis of revival that begins not in the heart of man, but in the heart of God. No, they didn't turn to him. He turned them to him. Five three, he shall give them up is something akin to Romans chapter one, being given over. And then he comes in and rescues all with 
the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The prophecy should have resulted, as I said, in a national celebration upon the birth of Christ. I would encourage you to see in verse 3, when she who is in labor is given birth, that that is a reference to Mary, his mother. Then the rest of his brothers shall return. The first blessing of the Messiah Those who are of the remnant will come to the Lord. Did we not hear that promise at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi? He would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. This idea that once again our great God and King would draw attention to the old ancient paths of righteousness and truth, that there would be coming a Messiah, that he would come and save his people. Primarily not from Roman authority or from military domination, but from themselves and their own sinfulness, which is far more degrading and dangerous than those physical enemies around them. 5.4, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength and majesty of the Lord. Shepherd with tenderness his people and govern them in the strength of God the Father with all the attendant glory of the majesty on The Messiah is the mighty God equipped with the Spirit of God. He isn't some harsh business-like director, but a glorified king with the attendant lofty character of the eternal king of the universe, as spoken of in Revelation chapter 4. And there, perhaps, in all of the scriptures, you get the best glimpse of the glories of heaven in that place where the Lord Jesus came from. His majesty and honor. It's hard to get that in the narratives of the New Testament when the Apostle Peter is literally trying to manage Jesus. Think of it. Had they really understood the truths of the Old Testament, in light of the Messiah King, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, they would have never tried to manage Jesus. But in his humility, they had so gotten the idea of the degradation of the leaders of God's people that the leaders of God's people were distant, lofty, and really away from the people that they were to lead. But the Lord Jesus, of course, removes all of those poor and unbiblical ideas about what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a king, what it means to be the God-man, because he's with us in his own humility, put off the people in a sense. They were looking at the Lord Jesus with with contempt because of his lowliness. We're inclined to do that as well. We consider the Lord Jesus Christ and we may think thoughts like, well, you know, it's your job to forgive me. And so please do. Or we might say, well, where are you, Jesus? I I need you today. I I think you're away from me and distant. That's no way to treat 
king? The majesty on high? Yes, he's with us. Yes, he is tender. And it, is, it is the most difficult thing, it seems, for us to be tender and also recognize the urgencies of the hour. I think that is a significant word for our culture. There are many who see the tremendous demand and the urgency of the degradation of the community, of the world that we live in, and there's this, this idea that, that a harsh kind of director, a sort of mentality that's very distant, seems to put off uh, the realities of that who would be a true leader and that one who is also gaining a sense and understanding a sense of great urgency and the ability to defend with power and disciplined strength, but also to be tender. and to be loving. What a challenge. But that's what marked the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior King, the one who was worthy of all glory and honor, even as a little baby in a manger. Micah chapter 5 speaks to that. He shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. Since when do shepherds get such majesty and glory? And they shall dwell secure. And he shall be their Peace. They will dwell secure because he shall be great to the ends of the earth. Look at that last phrase in verse 4. They shall dwell secure for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. For now because, because of, they shall dwell secure. Why? Because his greatness is known to the ends of the earth. He shall be their peace. Not ultimately a notional or a spiritual peace in the midst of outward physical turmoil. Presently it is true that we have the Prince of Peace. We enjoy union with him who is our peace. But we also Realize that every knee does not yet bow. All is not completed. The creation is not yet in its final state. But the Messiah will take her there. Now, this is an important idea. He is their peace because we hear this and we think, we say, oh, yeah, okay, I, I understand. Jesus is my peace. In the midst of all the horrifying turmoil of my life, I can, I can go sort of uh, burrow myself into the peaceableness of the Lord Jesus Christ and that all around me is still yet uh, on fire, as it were. And of course, to some degree, that is true. The reality is, is, is that we can, in fact, uh, in the dangers and all the urgencies of our culture, in the life that we live in this place, God has made us for this place, for this time. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely and fully and comprehensively our peace. We're in union as redeemed to this one who, who is peace. And this is important because one of the interesting things about this little phrase in verse 5, he shall be their peace, 
is that it reveals a very significant attribute of the Lord. And that is something that might catch you by surprise, and that is his simplicity. Now you need to know that when we refer to our God as being a simple being, it's not irreverent. He is peace. You see, one of the aspects of simplicity is that his essence is his attributes. We can only be peaceable, but we can't be peace because we aren't simple beings in that sense. The essence of who we are isn't, in fact, our attributes, but that is true of the Lord Jesus. Jesus isn't merely loving. His essence is love. His essence is peace. His essence is justice. Now, you've seen billboards, no doubt, across the land that may say about the air conditioner repairman, we are service. The idea they're projecting is one of simplicity. We define service. We are, the, we are the origin of service. We are the standard of service. But this is simply uh, a recognition. Of course, you realize that that actually isn't altogether true. But when the Lord Jesus says that he is our peace, he means just that. The very essence of his being is peace. When he is there, there is peace there. And that isn't true of anyone that isn't God. He is our peace. But we also see here that it's a tremendous projection of hope. It is true that we have the Prince of Peace. We enjoy union with him, but we also realize that every knee does not yet bow. He doesn't have this visual, comprehensive dominion over all things. And if we run this through the filter of our own human expectations, we may begin actually to appreciate a diminishment of what he means. Like, oh, let me lower my expectations and then I'll be able to embrace what I think he means. But this is, again... The, the pattern of our sovereign God, right, is to blow away our expectations with the realities of what his purposes and plans are. He will have overall dominion over all things. This one who will and is the shepherd of Israel in tenderness and love and also with great urgency, he also does that with an irresistible dominion over all who would be their enemies. This leads us further into verse 5, when the Assyrian, that is simply a representative of the enemy of God's people in every age, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. Now, I want you to focus for a moment on seven shepherds and eight princes of men. And I want to encourage you to connect that with a simple little phrase in verse 7. Like dew from the Lord. 
like showers on the grass. Now, the picture there is very simply one of abundance. As if it would take seven shepherds of the Lord to overcome her enemies, what does the Lord Jesus say? I'll give you eight. Seven represents a complete and comprehensive abundant ability to completely overpower any enemy of God. But that isn't the way our God works. He works in an overwhelming way. And that's the picture of dew on the grass. If there's anything we know about dew, it's this. It's everywhere. <laughs> it's everywhere. It is wet everywhere. And that's this picture of abundance. There I'm walking. I take three steps and my feet are completely soaked with dew. And this is this idea of abundance. Of an overwhelming but yet... Uh, Loving and disciplined strength is the Lord Jesus Christ in his royal majesty. You see, it's hard for us even to think about royalty and majesty and a monarchy and this kind of thing. We live, of course, in a democratic republic that is limping along, as it were. We're very removed from the concept of monarchy, but sometimes we utter phrases like, if I were king for a day. But oftentimes, even in our best moments, we recognize that if I were king for a day, I would still lack all of the lofty majesty and the tenderness of this one who is, in fact, the only king. All other kings are under him. But our Lord, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is perfect in every way. He is completely powerful. He has an irresistible force. He puts down all of the enemies of, of himself and of his people. And yet, he isn't harsh and unloving to his people. But he is yet can be tender and gentle as a shepherd should be. He's ultimately their peace by carrying out three things. We can see this in the rest of the chapter. Defending Israel against destructive attacks by exalting Israel to become a superior, irresistible power in verses 7 through 9 and by exterminating all the materials of warfare, verses 10 through 15. So what is his plan, basically? Well, in a nutshell, it's this. Ultimately, the Lord Jesus Christ will be displayed as the comprehensive, all-knowing, all-powerful, powerful king on the earth. Every knee will, in fact, bow. And the remnant, God's people, will lovingly recognize their shepherd and be appreciative of every moment of his care. And then he will put down all of the enemies of himself and of his people 
with all of the powerful warfare and destructive activity that's required in ending all of those enemies. And then he will destroy every means of war. Every means of war will be destroyed. There will no longer be a necessity for those things. Many nations will come to the Lord and also many will persist in enmity against God and his people. The Messiah will tenderly shepherd his people and also victoriously defend and put down all the enemies of himself and his people. The more the gospel spreads, the more enmity will also come. You know, this is one of the interesting and really, in my own mind, unexpected aspects of our culture today. And for some reason, it continues to kind of surprise me every day. It seems so obvious to me of the, uh, of the truthfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the gospel, that when truth is revealed about these things in our culture, it seems so obvious to me that others should be able to see that and to recognize it and to turn from their ways. But that isn't true at all. And we see this really displayed in Micah chapter 5. The greater the power of the gospel displayed in the world, we also see the more vehement are the enemies of God. And that is the nature of depravity. There's tremendous anger and acidic vitriol against God and his people. And so we also see, really summarized for us helpfully in the catechism, the prophet and priest and king of the Lord Jesus Christ, even here in Micah chapter 5, prophet revealing to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. We see his prophetic office in Micah. Particularly in chapter 6, verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good. The Lord speaks to us the truth by his word and spirit, the will of God. He is... In his priestly office, his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and reconcile us to God. And in making continual intercession for us, chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. We, it's easy sometimes for us to forget what it is that God has done in Christ to forgive our sins. And perhaps if we were to meditate on the challenge it is for us as sinful humans to forgive, it would help us to maybe touch a little closer what it took for the Lord Jesus to forgive. 
Does it not seem to you when you forgive others rightly that it's costly? It's as if every time you say, I forgive you, it costs you $100, right? There's another $100 bill. Oof. But what we forget is that the same as this seven shepherds and eight princes, the same as the dew on the land, the money, as it were, the currency that it costs us to forgive all comes from that great abundant source, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we pull out of our pocket, so to speak, the $100 bill, and we reach in, and there's another, and another, and another. Our shepherd king paid the price. And it wasn't a bargain. It wasn't a bargain. He paid the full price. The full price for our sins. And the payment for the penalty of our sins is only half of what he did for us. Because we also know that he obeyed God perfectly. And he applied that to us as well. His priestly office, forgiveness of sins. And then lastly, king, prophet, priest, and king. The Westminster Shorter Catechism helps us in this as well, subduing us to himself and ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. He's a ruler, chapter 5-2, and he's a shepherd, 5-5. Oftentimes we're happy about this, um, the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ as he puts down his enemies, right? That's what a king should do. He protects, he defends. But there's something else the king does. He brings us into submission to himself. Our everyday proves that's no easy task for us to submit and follow the Lord Jesus. The Lord has seen fit to give us some amazing pictures of shepherding and sheep right in my own backyard. I have some sheep that I let out of the pen and they, because they're trustworthy and know who I am, they follow me for a while and then they have the whole pasture to themselves. And at night they go meet me at the stall and I shut the gate. But then I have other sheep that I have to tie a rope around their neck and drag them out to the fresh, wet grass. And they fight me every minute. And the Lord Jesus is majestic and tender and powerful and it is his purpose and he will accomplish in every way the submission of us, those unruly sheep, and also as he cares tenderly for the others. Verses 6 and 7. 
while the Lord will be an ultimate overwhelming force against her enemies and will enjoy many longing also for spiritual blessing. That blessing, again, will not be in accord with their expectations, but far, far beyond like due from the Lord. In the end of the chapter, the Lord will eradicate all confidence and chariots and horses. Verse 10, in that day declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all of your strongholds. And these strongholds included things like sorceries and tellers of fortunes and images and pillars that they bowed down to. We recognize we're no better than that. We have strongholds, things we depend on, that aren't Jesus. That doesn't mean you should sell your car if you need to go somewhere. But it does help for us to understand that our focus should always be in this continual process of looking to Christ, looking to Christ, looking to Christ for the provision for everything. And we see in him not only a tender shepherd, not only this humble carpenter from Bethlehem. No, he's much more than that. And those people looked behind the counter and they saw Joseph or the Lord Jesus behind it working away in their shop. And they made an order they never imagined perhaps that the one to whom they were placing their order was the master of the universe that had capabilities beyond their imagination. But he was there all the same. Majesty, glory, and honor. That's our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I pray today that it would be with great joy and hope and anticipation that even as we look on the sin-stained world, even as we dress the wounds and the scars from challenges and difficulties of our day, even as we stumble over granting forgiveness and changing, that we might reflect you, our Lord, and that we might also enjoy greater fellowship. Father, we pray that in that we would be reminded and encouraged with all of the hopefulness that goes well beyond our own expectations and experience to that which we've never imagined and would never have come up with without it being revealed as truth in your word. The goodness of you, our King, we praise you and thank you that you've come to earth, that you're with us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.